Hey, this is Matt Stacy, youth pastor at New Life, and this is our podcast. I hope that the preaching and teaching you listen to here encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with God. This podcast is a ministry of New Life, and as such, is completely free to the listener. That being said, if you feel led to give to this ministry, we want to make that available to you. You can text GIVE to 833-793-0451. You can also give online through the Tithely app by searching New Life Tabernacle. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the message. Jesus, we give you glory, we give you honor, we give you praise. We magnify you, Jesus. We magnify you, Jesus. Praise the Lord, everybody. Amen. Welcome to New Life Tabernacle. Thank you for being faithful to the house of the Lord this Wednesday night. We're living in interesting times. Amen. If you follow the news, the world's coming to an end. And they're sure about it. Amen. Tonight we're going to study, as we've been studying for the last several months, the end of the world. The actual end of the world that is going to take place. Not something you have to speculate about. Not something that you have to wonder about. The Bible spells it out pretty clearly what's going to happen at the end of the world. Amen. God is going to judge unrighteousness and He's going to sit on the throne. King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Should we pay attention to what's going on in the world? Absolutely. It's important that we stay informed. Why should Christians stay informed? When Jesus, and this is a whole other Bible lesson, but when they asked Jesus, should we pay taxes? Jesus told them yes. What he was doing is he was telling them, you have a dual obligation. There's two kingdoms that you're living for and living in. You have an obligation to the kingdom that you're living in right now. You have an obligation. The Christians in that day had an obligation to Caesar, which is the secular society. And then they've also got an obligation to God's kingdom. Amen. We are to be salt and light. We are not to bury our heads in the sand and pretend that nothing is happening in the world or that all is well. But we are to be active in prayer and in reaching the lost with the truth of the Word of God. Amen. So there's nothing wrong with staying informed, but there is something wrong with allowing the news that's in our world to create fear in your heart. What it should do is cause us to pray more frequently, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But instead, we allow the news to generate fear and anxiety in our heart as to what's going on and how it's going to turn out. It's not the will of God. God is in control. Amen. Let's pray over this Bible study and then we're going to dive right in. Jesus, we thank you so much for another opportunity to study your word. God, we are so grateful for the freedom that you've blessed us with inside of this country. God, we commit to standing on your word, to studying your word when it's popular and when it's not. So we're grateful, Lord, that right now we have the freedom and we will be grateful when we do not have the freedom. 
We lift you up. We give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor for your word. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Tonight we are in our 30th lesson in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 18. When last we studied, we looked at chapter 17. We saw the harlot Babylon, the one world uh, religion, was destroyed in chapter 17. Interesting uh, to look over the word of God and find the the roots of Babylon, the spirit of Babylon, that spirit of idolatry that's been at work from the very beginning, in the and it's been at work in our world, and it's in it's at work even now. Uh, but one day it will cause uh, the religions of this world to unite over everything that is false. And they will unite in their hatred of the truth and they will create a one world system. That system will be destroyed by none other than the Antichrist and his government. And in its place will be put in a different kind of one world religion. It will be one world religion that worships only the beast. And you will be required to worship the beast to take the mark of the beast in order to buy, sell, or trade. We studied that. That was in chapter 17. Chapter 18 tonight, uh, we look at a different aspect of Babylon. We look at Babylon as a real and actual city that will be rebuilt uh, at the time uh, of the end of the world that we're studying here in chapter 18. And it will be the center of economic activity in the world at that time. What's fascinating is uh, how many times people have tried to figure out when Babylon would be rebuilt. There have been men throughout history that have tried to rebuild Babylon. Uh, obviously, I was just a child at the time, so I don't, I don't remember it from... Um, experience, but I know it from study and from reading, that Saddam Hussein, during his reign, uh, was literally attempting to rebuild Babylon. And uh, in the room that I sleep in at my grandparents' house, there's a book that was written in the 90s by a man who was sure that that was uh, what was happening in Revelation 18. He was positive that it was a sign that the world was coming to an end. And here we are in 2022, and we're still here, and Babylon has yet to be built. But we do believe that it's going to be built. The point is, is it, it speculating about certain things, it, it really doesn't help, because many are the speculators, and very few, uh, in fact, none are the ones who actually get it right. Amen. So, that being said, there have been men throughout history who have tried it. None have accomplished it yet. But eventually somebody will. There will be someone who rebuilds Babylon, will rebuild it uh, to its greatness and its height and probably greater than it's ever been before. And at that time, it will be uh, similar to New York City today. New York City today is a center of world commerce. Um, 
There's banks of the world. There's all kinds of things that are connected in New York City. Babylon uh, in this day will be very similar to that in the sense that it will be a central hub of economic activity and it will be a very real city at that time. That being said, laying the foundation, let's look at the first verses here in chapter 18. Verses 1, 2, and 3. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, that's the prison of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. So again, this is talking about Babylon as a very real city uh, and an economic center. Here John sees what he calls another angel. Uh, Again, the Greek word there, we've discussed this several times in Revelation, but it's literally another of the same kind. So you might listen to some people who read that and they would say, uh, well, that's Jesus uh, coming back in that uh, particular uh, vision uh, not so it says that it's an angel it's another of the exact same t- same kind so this angel comes down to earth and as he comes down he lights the earth uh, with the brightness of his glory the angel announces whenever he comes to earth uh, the destruction of Babylon he announces the end of Babylon is getting ready to come Babylon then will be turned over to uh, demonic activity uh, unbefore seen. Evil and unclean spirits are going to be located there, turned over to demonic hordes. Um, and why? Scripture is clear. It's going to be turned over because every nation and every king committed fornication with her, with this city, with the with this spirit of Babylon, and they have become rich because of her. It's interesting. I've just said it a, a few times. Babylon being the economic center or system of that day, uh, the number one thing that uh, identifies it would be materialism. What is what is Babylon? It is it is materialism. A materialism. Uh, at a level that the world has not seen yet. But we know a little bit about materialism today um, in our world. America is a very materialistic society. Uh, we have issues if our certain brand is not on the shelves in our stores. We have problems. We get anxiety thinking about the fact that you know something like that may not happen. Uh, if they whisper of a snowstorm in Oklahoma, you go to the... You go to this store and all the shelves are empty because nobody's going to be without their favorite thing uh, for the duration of the snowstorm as it lasts for, you know, three days. Amen. God forbid that they'd have to go without, you know, their special thing. But here, these people are uh, 
they are drunk on materialism and the spirit of Babylon. Remember, it's a, it's a real city at this time, and, it, and it's a city that represents uh, all of the economic activity of the world. So it's the height of power in that day. Nations, kings, and merchants, uh, the Bible says, are wealthy off of it. What are they wealthy of? They're wealthy off of. They're wealthy off of the idolatry of the evil materialism of that day. People drunk on, on things and stuff and having to have the next new thing and the next best thing. Uh, it, it reminds me as I was studying this on just a small, uh, small token, you think of Apple and the iPhone. And, uh, I'm appreciative of my iPhone. But if you buy a new iPhone because you want to, you want to be, you know, at the top for a couple of years, you will not be at the top for a couple of years. You will be at the top for exactly a year until the next year comes out and they give you the next new thing with maybe two updates and they charge you several hundred dollars more for the new thing. Why? Why are they able to do that? They're able to do that because we in this country, just like Babylon that is going to come, are drunk on materialism. We need the next new thing. We need it now. We want it now. And that's how Apple and others are able to sell uh, to uh, people. It's not just America. It's, it's, it's Western countries and Western nations that are drunk on this materialism. Just like uh, the people here. But the people in, in this city, Babylon, at the end of the world, they worship their stuff. They worship their stuff. They needed their stuff. Remember, this is, this is after the rapture of the church. This is, uh, this is judgments have been pouring out. Um, and this is chronologically the greatest judgments haven't been poured out yet, but they will by the end of this chapter. And, uh, these people are still drunk on their stuff, having to have their stuff. They know that they have to know. And, and from what we've studied, it, it appears that they do know that God does exist. In their hearts, they know that the judgment that is being poured out across the world is judgment from God. And yet, these people are still worshiping their stuff even as judgment sits at the door. Even though they know that it's moments away, still they want their stuff and they need their stuff and they're convinced that some way, somehow, they will overcome the judgment of God or they will avoid the judgment of God. Can you tell me that we don't have a world full of people just like that even today? It's because the things that are in the human heart are there from the beginning of time and will be there until the end of time. There are people that would rather have stuff than God and worship stuff than God. And that's exactly what's happening in this ancient city. Pleasure at any cost, whatever it takes, don't take away my pleasure. Don't take away my stuff. That's the city of Babylon. It's reminiscent of ancient Babylon, this story that we're, not really a story, this vision that we're seeing here in chapter 18 of the end of the world and, and that great city Babylon. It reminds me of the ancient city Babylon. You go back in the Word of God, you read of Babylon and, and uh, Babylon and that great story where 
the handwriting comes onto the wall. The king sees a hand and on the hand or on the wall, it writes a message. And essentially, your kingdom's coming down is the message. It's been written in stone. It's going to happen. Those people, the enemy at the gate, the enemy getting ready to destroy their city, those people that night got drunk and partied and celebrated to their destruction. And they ended up getting conquered and destroyed. That's ancient Babylon. And then we fast forward to chapter 18 of the book of Revelation. We're at the end of the world. And that spirit is still infecting the heart of people. And they've rebuilt this city, Babylon. And they're doing the same thing again. They're lusting after stuff and things. And they're getting drunk off of the pleasures of this world. All the while, Jesus is standing at the doorstep ready to pour out final judgment. Not judgment. Final judgment. The end. It's over after this point. When we study next week, what we're going to study is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Whenever he comes back in all of his glory, riding on a white horse with all of his saints. That's chapter 19 and beyond, and he establishes his kingdom. But right here in Revelation 18, there's still hope, and yet they are so drunk on stuff and materialism that just like ancient Babylon, their fate is already written in stone because they would refuse to turn. Materialism does that. And just as materialism is deadly for them in the future, it is so deadly for us as well. Can I say that contentment is the jewel of the Christian? It's hard to, it, it, I shouldn't say hard, it's maybe unpopular. At the end of the day, we fear God and we don't fear man. But it is unpopular to preach about contentment in our world. Because as much as I love America, what you hear the most of is you've got to achieve the next great thing. And you hear it in the church too because that spirit has infected the church. It's greatness, right? We can't even, we can't even preach about David and Goliath and about the victory of God over the enemy, over the Philistines without saying that there's a David in you. There's greatness in you. Because in our world, in America, everything has to be centered towards us. Contentment is unheard of. It's the next great thing. And the only thing that keeps us uh, from, from falling into depression is knowing that maybe tomorrow uh, I'll achieve something great. Today wasn't that great, but maybe tomorrow I'll get the next job or the next raise or the next thing. And then I'll be happy and then I'll be content. That is unchristian. That is the very definition of unchristian. And you say, well, what is Christian? Paul tells us what Christian is. Paul said, I have learned in whatever state I am in, therewith to be content. That's the attitude and the definition of a Christian. So a Christian says, if the economy suffers, if it goes down, I'll be okay because I'm content knowing that I am a child of God. I may not have as much stuff as I used to have, but I'm just as saved as I used to be. 
I'm content. And a Christian says, tomorrow God may open up heaven and pour out blessing upon us. And if he does, I say glory to God. All of it is God's. And if he chooses to do that, I'll be content in the blessing that he pours out. But if he also chooses to shut up the heavens and not pour out blessings upon my life, I choose to be content. Believers, those of us that are gathered here today, as we get closer to the coming of the Lord and the world gets more evil and more evil and America right now is being shaken to her very core, we have got to have it set up and decided in our hearts that we are content with whatever happens. We're content. We're content that Jesus is still in control. That Jesus has got it all taken care of. I will not allow what's happening in our world to control my emotions in that way. I'm content. We have to become content. We have to get to the place to where we can pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, one more time. You ask, what's the difference between Christianity today and Christianity in the first century? It may just very well be that phrase. Christians today fear praying that phrase. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In fact, even as I've said it two or three times just now, I'm willing to bet that there's a couple of people in here that even your heart would say just a little bit uncomfortable with that phrase, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And I wouldn't ask you to raise your hand, but I would ask you to search your heart if that's you in this place. That's uncomfortable with the phrase, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You have to ask yourself, why? What has my heart attached itself to that I can no longer pray for the King of glory, the Lord that I say that I serve, to come quickly? What is it that I need to detach myself from? We're talking about contentment being that thing that is the jewel of the Christian. And even as that is true, materialism materialistic addiction is the defining characteristic of worldliness and the world what is it that defines the world it's materialism it's it's that idolatry that would say that jesus is not enough i've got to have stuff as well it's not just a grateful heart for stuff that god has blessed us with it's a it's a it's something deep inside of the heart that says i can't survive unless I have that stuff. Let's look at the next couple of verses. We'll go even deeper on what I'm trying to point out here. Verses 4 and 5. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, now this is, remember, he's talking to a great city in that day, an economic power, Babylon. Come out of her, my people that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. If there's believers in the city of Babylon, he's telling them, you have got to get out. And not just the city, but the system. He's telling them to get out of the system. What system? That materialistic, pleasure-loving system can't be attached to it why because i'm getting ready to destroy it it's not going to last 
It reminds you, it harkens back. You can't read this without thinking of Lot in the Old Testament. Abraham pleads to God, if there's 50 righteous, don't destroy it. God said he wouldn't destroy it for 50, and then 40, and then 30, all the way down to where all I've got is Lot, and God tells him, you better get Lot out of there. And so he sends his angels to Lot, and he tries to pull them out of there. And and the struggle that it was to detach himself from that city, his daughters didn't even want to get detached from that city. And we all know what happened to to his wife, Remember Lot's wife, so tied up in the love of the world, in the love of a city that God has decided and destined to destroy, that even while they're leaving and even while she can hear in, in the background the fire falling on Sodom and Gomorrah, God pouring out his judgment, even so, The love of that place was so strong and so tied to her heart that she turns back around. And God turns her to salt. You know the story. I wonder though, as the end of the world comes near, how many of us are not so much afraid of the judgment of God being poured out, but of the stuff that we're going to lose when that happens. And the things that we're no longer going to have. You know, I'm sure you've heard it said, people say it jokingly, and I'm sure they say it with a good heart, and they don't, they don't mean anything by it, but you've heard people say something like, uh, I sure wish that they have um, chocolate in heaven. I sure hope that they've got golf in heaven. I sure hope they have this or that in heaven. And even as I'm saying it, you're probably thinking there's a couple of things that I've thought of that myself that I, that I hope they have that in heaven. And that's why every book that you've ever read about somebody who claims to have been to heaven, they're full of liars and lies. And here's why. Brother Kendall, whenever they write about heaven, they write about everything but Jesus. And you're telling me that you've been serving Jesus all your life and God transports you to heaven and you're stuck on everything in heaven except for the king? And you can write an entire book and you can sell that book to millions, but nowhere do you describe King Jesus in that book? Forgive me for not believing it. I feel like today, and it, and, I, and, I, and I'm teaching to myself, because I have to pray, even after teaching this lesson, even while teaching this, my heart is, my heart is crying out to God, God, if there's anything inside of me that loves this world more than it loves the world that is to come, get it out of me. If there's anything that is entangling me to this world, I want to be cut free from it. I don't want there to be anything that would cause me to look back in that day. God forbid it. And even now, he tells his people, Revelation 18, he says, get out. I'm going to destroy it. And hopefully they do that thing. Hopefully they listen to to the voice of God in that day. But the question for us tonight, as we await the rapture and the coming of the Lord, is are we ready to abandon this world? There shouldn't be anything in your life that you would not be willing to give up for the kingdom of God and the glory of God. There should be nothing in your life that you have to hold on to in order to serve God. I'm reading stories of of Christians right now in Ukraine that are in bomb shelters and they're singing praises and glory to God and they're trying to keep their faith and American 
uh, in time gurus and prophets speculate in, uh, about uh, what does this mean and, and all of this kind of stuff. You know what it means to those Christians? It means that their, their foundation has just been ripped out from under them. And now the test is really there for every apostolic. Am I really serving Jesus because Jesus is good because he saved me or am I serving him because of the stuff? Because it was a nice thing to have the name Christian attached to me. Now with the rug's been torn out from under it. What would we do in that day? Here's the truth. In case someone says, that's for, that's for the end of the world. That's not for us today. I want you to know that that call to separate yourself from the world is a call that stands true in every age until Jesus comes back. Let me read a few scriptures. This is nothing new. This is the heart of God for every believer of every age. He says in Romans 12, 2, this is the word of the Lord. Believers are to keep themselves from being caught up in this system. It says, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 17. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And just so you know, that is talking about relationships. It's talking about uh, romantic relationships as well as business relationships as well as close friendships. You ought not be tying yourself together with worldliness. What communion hath light and darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with, believeth with an infidel? Remember, this is Paul. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. It's the same call. And God is going to be making this call until the very last moment of this earth. James 1.27, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. And here we go. And to keep himself unspotted from the world. James 4 and 4, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, wherefore, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. 1 John 2.15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Why is it that this, this uh, call to separate ourselves is so strong and so frequent throughout the New Testament? It's because that is the one thing that will keep us from getting where we need to go. Because you can be walking with God, but at the same time, so intertwined with the world that all of a sudden, just the idea of being raptured away sends fear into your heart. Not because you're going to see Jesus, but because you're going to lose the stuff that you've fallen in love with. It's not the will of God. And it's not the will of God for them to stay in that city. Not when judgment is coming. There's nothing, you know, the elders used to say, you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. 
And it stands true today. There's nothing that we can take with us when we go. Does that mean that you shouldn't be, uh, that, that you shouldn't save money? And does that mean that you shouldn't be wise with your money? No, that's not what that means. You are to be wise. You are to live in this world, but you are not to love this world. And if everything that you have gets taken away from you, but you still have Jesus, you ought to be satisfied and content. That's the word of the Lord from Paul. I have learned in every situation, whatever state that I'm in, to be content. Next thing that we notice says, For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. This is powerful imagery here. Literally, that is, their sins are glued together all the way to heaven. This points all the way back to Babel. If you remember in the Tower of Babel, what was their goal? To build a tower that reached heaven. And they failed. And they failed because God stopped them, confounded them, sent them away. At the end of the world, God says her sins have literally been glued to heaven glued together all the way, stretching all the way to heaven. I I can't avoid them any longer. They're here. Ties it all the way back to the beginning. What they failed to do at the beginning, they have succeeded to do in sin here at the end of the world, and now God must respond. Didn't know I had that slide there. Verses 6 through 8. Reward her even as she rewarded you and double unto her, double according to her works. In the cup which she hath filled, fill to her double. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. The first thing that you've got to notice here is that God is a God of vengeance. God of vengeance. Every underrepented sin will be judged. The, the thought that I keep coming up with as I'm reading Revelation and studying Revelation, is is it possible, and I would say even likely, that the reason that America, the Christians in America are so out of balance in their view of Jesus is because they never touch this book. And all they read about is the Jesus of the Gospels, and so they think of Jesus as nothing but soft and loving and merciful. And he is loving and merciful, but this is why we have to look at the whole voice of Scripture because when Jesus comes back, he's coming back as a God of vengeance. And look at the prayer that the angels prayed. Give them double. Double. What are they saying? They're saying that the punishment needs to match the crime, Lord. They have martyred your your church. They have killed your believers. Pour out double vengeance upon them. And that's how the Lord responds. He responds with vengeance and judgment. And what's fascinating is, 
it says that in their heart, right, and these these people, and it, and it does remind me a little bit of of an American attitude, this attitude that we're gonna we're gonna go on no matter what, that we can just survive anything. These people are so proud that they say nothing can touch us. I'm a queen. This city says she's a queen. No sorrow can reach her. And yet at the very end of that verse, it says, the Lord is strong. So you can try to stop the judgment of God. You can try to, with things and materialism, drown out the coming judgment of God. You can do it with substances and, and, and anything in this world to try to drown out the future that is, that is coming so quickly upon the world, but you are going to be unable to. And they will be unable to in that day because God is strong and His vengeance and His judgment will overcome. We're going we're gonna to read here very quickly these uh, verses 9 through 19. All of it kind of goes together, so it would be very hard to identify a couple of verses and just pull them out. It says, And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament her when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. They thought they were tough. They thought they could last. And God, in just an hour, destroys this city. And then later, we're going to find out to the extent that he destroys it. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise anymore. Our stuff is gone. Our stuff is gone. That's the worry of the world at the end of the day. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all the thine and thine wood and all manner vessels of ivory and all manner vessels of, of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. And the fruits that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee, and all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. The things that they lusted after with everything in them, their stuff, God says you will find it no more. I have destroyed it. And he's on his way back. Chapter 19 is just around the corner. The merchants of these things, which were made rich by her, shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour so great riches has come to naught. Everything that we've worked for at the end of the world, these evil rebellious, stiff-necked people, everything that they decided to work for and push after, it's all gone in just a matter of a moment. And every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood afar off and cried 
when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what city is like unto this great city? They really didn't believe it can happen everywhere else, but it can't happen here. And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness, for in one hour she is made desolate. So what are we reading right here in those verses? Babylon is destroyed. The system and the city and the entire world is mourning. Worse than all of the other judgments that have come, you've taken our stuff and the city we work so hard to build. The whole world is mourning at this point. But look what's happening in heaven. Look at the contrast. You have nothing to fear if you're baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost and living for God. Verse 20. This is heaven's point of view. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. God says rejoice because judgment has finally come. As Christians, we should not fear the end of the world. It's coming, whether we like it or not. It's on its way. And we choose to be on God's side so we have nothing to fear. But rather, we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we rejoice at your coming. Look very quickly at the rest of this chapter. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone. And cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall shall that great city Babylon be thrown down, and shall be found no more at all. Total destruction. You know, today, in cities that have been bombed, in cities that have been destroyed, quote-unquote, you can go and find the remnants. In that day, if you were around, you would not be able to find the remnants of that great city. That's the great destruction that God is going to pour out upon it. It can be found no more at all. And this is sobering. And the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be be heard no more at all in thee. And no craftsman of whatsoever craft he be, shall be found any more in thee. And the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. Sobering. The silence here is deafening. No more singing. No music is heard. There's no sound of craftsmen working. There's no lights anywhere. There's no celebrations taking place. This city that is the capital of the world, it is the New York City of that day. 
is so utterly and completely destroyed that there is no place in that city where any sound is being made. What do they call New York City? They call the city the, the city that never sleeps. It's constantly noise and chaos and loud. They say if you live there, you get used to it, and you wouldn't be able to sleep without that noise. Imagine New York City completely and utterly silent, not hearing anything. That is the great sound of judgment that is going to hit Babylon. If you want to stand, we're coming to a close. Next week, it's going to be a little different mood. Next week, we're studying chapter 19. What is chapter 19? Chapter 19 is the beginning of the coming of the Lord. Jesus coming back to this earth and establishing his king, crowning him king of kings and Lord of lords because there is none other like Jesus in all of the earth. And I cannot wait to celebrate that. I cannot wait to celebrate that. I do not want to be here when the church gets raptured away. I want to be a part of the church that comes back with him to this earth. And how does he come back? He comes back conquering with a sword in his hand. He comes back as the warrior king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. You have to have a balanced view of Jesus. He is not all loving and mercy. He is those things, but he is more. There is more to him. He is a warrior. <clears throat> that thing inside of men, it's not there by accident. You know, you don't have to teach little boys to decide to grow, to go outside and fight. I don't remember my parents ever teaching me to go and pretend to be a great warrior outside fighting a battle. And yet I would. I'd go out there, a stick would become my sword, depending on which, which time I was living at that moment. Sometimes I was in the ancient times, I had a stick for a sword. If the stick was, was curved at all, it's a bow, ready to fight. Sometimes it would be, uh, it would be guns. Me and my cousins would go out there and Papal's pastor and we would fight. We would fight untold hordes of enemies that nearly killed us several times, but we survived every time. That thing that is not inside of young boys, that, that, it's not there by accident. It's not there because somebody just taught, taught me, well, you know what you need to do? You need to go pretend to be a warrior. You know what, young boys, there's something inside of us. It's kind of like King Jesus, the God in whose image we are created. He is not just all loving and merciful there's more to him he is those things but he's also a warrior and king jesus is going to come back as a warrior one day and that thing that's inside of of young men that wants a battle to fight and wants a victory to win that's going to have its conclusion as we come back with king jesus and we fight that final battle with him i can't wait for that day and i want us to pray tonight I know I kind of lighten the mood a little bit, but I don't want to take the pressure off too much. I'm going to open these altars. I want, you to, I want you to find a place to pray. If you want to pray up here, if you want to pray in your pews. But here's what I want you to do, because this preacher is going to do the exact same thing. I want you to search your heart tonight. And you need to ask yourself and ask God to reveal some things. Is there anything in your heart 
that is tied to this world in such a way that if it is disconnected, it would hurt you. That it would cause you to look back in that day. I wonder if we could find a place to pray right now and we could ask God to do that searching inside of us.